This is an ABC podcast. Hello, this is Coronacast, a daily podcast all about the coronavirus. I'm health reporter Tegan Taylor. And I'm Coronacast's producer Will Ockenden. It is Thursday, the 11th of February. That it is. So, Will, let's start today with a chat about Melbourne's quarantine hotel situation because they've had a few cases that have that have all sort of clustered around this one hotel there. Yeah, the Holiday Inn at uh, Melbourne Airport, there's been several cases that have come from it now and it's clearly worried the Victorian government enough for them to close it down, move everyone from it for a deep clean, as the Premier Daniel Andrews uh, explained yesterday. There were several cases, I suppose we can refer to them. One was the the authorised officer, the other one was a food and beverage attendant, and then the third case was a hotel resident. And all of them, they think, are linked back to the theory that they're going and calling at the moment called the nebulizer theory. So that sounds intriguing and we'll unpack that in a little bit. But uh, to save Will and I from speculating from our completely unqualified positions, we've brought in an actual expert today, uh, Dr. Kirsty Short, who's a virologist from the University of Queensland. Welcome, Kirsty. Hi. So, Kirsty, this theory, the nebulizer theory, is based on this idea that someone in the hotel was using a nebulizer, as in one of those medical devices that can help deliver a medicine to someone that can also create aerosols. Does this add more to our knowledge about how coronavirus does or doesn't transmit through the air? Well, look, I think there's been a lot of debate about this throughout the pandemic. And as a virologist, you know, I've never seen this as a black and white issue because you're never going to have a virus that is 100% aerosol and you're never going to have a virus that's 100% droplet. You're just going to have, in some circumstances, it's aerosol transmission, and in some circumstances, it's droplet transmission. So we've always sort of suspected in high-risk procedures like intubation of patients with COVID um, that that could be an aerosol-generating procedure. And I suspect probably what's happening in these hotel quarantine situations is we are getting a rather unfortunate string or unlucky string of events where by you are maybe having aerosols generated in the room for whatever reason, be it a nebulizer or others. And then what you've got to remember is that in facilities where you, where I work, say in the laboratory, where you work with the actual virus, it's all negative pressure. So that means that when you open a door, the air can't come out and it stays in the room. But these hotels aren't designed as quarantine facilities. So theoretically, what could happen is an individual, there could be lots of virus aerosolized in the room, an individual could open the door, and then somebody who was walking past or the virus could stay in the air for X amount of time as it was drawn into the corridor with the door being open. So these all sound like very pedantic risks, I guess, but when we're looking to detect every single case of infection, they are really, really important. And the Victorian Premier, Daniel Andrews, also yesterday announced that the state would not be increasing its intake of overseas visitors, uh, at least while they try and sort out what is going on. Specifically, the Victoria's battling with the so-called UK variant of coronavirus, saying that, you know, this has sort of changed everything. How much do you think that is a fair enough excuse to to try and put back on the, the problems with the system at the moment? Look, I think it is very fair to pause any increases in the hotel capacity until this problem is solved because you don't want this happening again. You know, that's what it comes down to. Whether or not this is fundamentally different with the UK variant is very difficult to say because we're still gathering a lot of evidence. The evidence suggests that that variant 
is more transmissible, but to what extent and in what circumstances we don't fully understand. So we're still very much acquiring the data. So I think what they're doing is just erring on the side of caution and saying, let's not put any additional strain on the system until we figure out how to optimise it. It feels like Victoria's had a pretty bad run during the pandemic. They've obviously had the big outbreak last year, but then there's also been these few cases in hotel quarantine there. Is it just, is it bad luck or is there more to it perhaps? Look, I think it's uh, probably a multitude of factors. What you've got to remember is that this virus is in inherently going to be more difficult the more people you have. So it was never a surprise when the pandemic first started in Australia that the cities that were most affected were Sydney, Melbourne and Brisbane, which are also the three most populated cities in the country. Accordingly, these are the cities that are receiving a large number of individuals coming back from overseas. So again, it's not really that surprising. I think Victoria did get incredibly unlucky last year with the hotel quarantine situation in that they were really the first in the country to experience how important um, maintaining the integrity of hotel quarantine was. And I think until that incident, we didn't realise how quickly and how easily it could spill out of hotel quarantine. And since that incident, we've learnt a lot, even since you know, there was a breach in Brisbane, for example. Now, people working in those facilities are being tested on a daily nature rather than weekly. So we're learning something every step of the way. And I think, unfortunately, Victoria was the example that taught us the most. But I think also Victoria and Sydney and to maybe a lesser extent Brisbane will always be more at risk just because there's more individuals coming back from overseas. Now, we want to get onto the World Health Organization report onto the origins of coronavirus. But before we do, just really quickly, yesterday New South Wales uh, announced that it was winding back some of its restrictions in relation to the outbreak that happened over the Christmas New Year period. But in particular, they had a, a sort of a funny case the other day pop up with a patient who tested positive on day 16 after testing negative twice while in hotel quarantine. And yesterday they said that it's probably going to be classed as a historical infection and it didn't come from an infection whilst in hotel quarantine. How likely is it that you'd test negative twice and then test positive with a historical infection? What do you think could be going on there? Yeah, so this is very possible and this is basically what happens at the tail end of the viral infection because what you've got to remember is that these tests are not detecting active infectious virus. They're detecting the genetic material of the virus that can kick around for quite some time after the actual active infectious virus is cleared. So if I had to hypothesise, what I would say is that this individual is at the very tail end of their infection, so they've got very low amounts of viral genomic material kicking around, and so they're testing negative, they're testing negative, and maybe once or twice they'll test positive because they're right at that limit of the detection. But individuals right at the limit of detection of the, the assay are really not likely to be infectious and not likely to be a risk to the community. So this is probably why they're talking about classifying it as a historical case. So let's now go to the World Health Organization's report into how they think that virus first emerged. And at least from the outset, it feels like it's a kind of unsatisfying answer. They didn't come back and say, yes, we know it definitely came from pangolins or bats, or yes, it was definitely released from a lab, but all of those things aren't completely ruled out either. What should we make of this report and their findings? Well, I think when we're talking about something as 
complex as the origins of a viral pandemic. You can't expect a group of experts, no matter how expert they are, to come in and within sort of 14 days solve the situation. What they can do is provide more evidence and they can start to get a clearer picture of the early days of the pandemic. So what they are suggesting is that it's very, very unlikely that it came from a lab, which we've known for quite some time. And what they're thinking is that it's most likely come from an intermediate species. So probably not a direct bat to human transmission, but some sort of intermediate species. Now, finding this intermediate species is incredibly hard. And this is, like I said, not just a a two-week activity. This is years' worth of research. But what is really important about this group is it's starting the dialogue of saying, okay, we really do need to investigate the origins of this pandemic because until we know the exact origins of this pandemic, we can't be confident that we're able to prevent it from happening in the future. I sort of flippantly said before that they didn't rule out that it had come from a lab and you've sort of touched on it a little bit there, but there have been suggestions those things have continued to sort of bounce around. And I suppose maybe it's a scientific thing that no one can ever rule anything out entirely, but we're pretty sure that it's come from animals, if I understand you rightly. Yes, I have no doubt in my mind that it is not a spillover from a lab. Um, It is a natural spillover event that's happened and that's happened in nature time and time again that we know happens with coronaviruses. You know, you ask, I think for a lot of people, the COVID-19 pandemic was a big shock and came out of the blue. But for those of us who work in emerging infectious disease, this is something that was going to happen. Now, just before we let you go, we've probably got time for a few quick questions if we have an impromptu quick fire Thursday, just inventing that segment for you right now. (laughs) Is UQ still working on a COVID-19 vaccine? So I'm not part of the UQ team that's working on the vaccine, so um, I can't tell you all the details of what's happening um, just because I don't know. But my understanding is what they're working on is optimising their technology further so that they can deploy it as a rapid vaccine technology, maybe not necessarily for this pandemic, but certainly we need these rapid technologies available for future pandemics. And we've got Elizabeth saying, in the past, have we always had vaccines designed only to prevent severe disease, like what we're seeing with COVID, or have they always been to prevent transmission or infection? Look, to be honest, it's very, very hard to develop a vaccine that prevents 100% of transmission or infection. And a lot of the time, we don't necessarily test for that. So one of the classic examples that's brought up is people say, oh, well, measles prevents infections. The measles vaccine prevents infection. But actually, there's emerging evidence that it's not necessarily the case and it probably just facilitates rapid clearance of the virus. Um, We know certainly with other vaccines, they don't protect against infection. Polio is a great example. It doesn't protect against infection, but it does protect against severe disease. I think what people need to remember is, is making a vaccine is incredibly difficult and a large number of the vaccines actually fail in one phase or another. So even to have a vaccine that reduces severe disease is incredibly significant. And then when you think about the short period of time it's been developed in, it's honestly just mind-blowing. Kirsty, thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. That's all we've got time for today. That's right. But if you want to ask us a question or leave us a comment, go to abc.net.au slash coronacast, click ask a question and mention coronacast so that we can find it. And we'll see you tomorrow. We'll see you then.